0: Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, a very warm welcome to uh, the second um, of our termly lectures, um, uh, the APGRD termly lectures for this term. If, as I think a number of people in this room already know, Erica has been perhaps one of the most significant and, uh, uh, and, and, and perhaps one of the most long-standing of the APGRD supporters uh, from the very outset, and in fact, we yeah. were just sharing memories of, of the days when um, the archive began in in one room with, I think it was Oliver Taplin's shoebox, um, yeah. we, had, <laughs> so. we had a, a, sort of, uh, a modest launch and, and Erica was there. And it, it was very important for classicists at that point to have the imprimatur of the then, and it'd be absolutely still now, uh, leading theatre theorist, theatre historian, and the person who continued, and indeed continues to engage with practice from, um, or I was going to say from Berlin, where she still works, but across Europe. And so, when, when Erica produced, in some ways, um, her most recent volume, which I think is a sort of monument to um, not only uh, the kinds of work that we do here, but also the key to so many um, pieces of research that have now actually become mainstream to classical reception. I mean, it's a, now a very well-established sub-discipline dis- of, of classical reception, called classical performance reception. And to have, um, as I say, Erica, who is coming at this material from a very different perspective, comes as a theatre historian, who's a theatre theorist, but also, as anyone who's read this book will know, someone who engages very deeply with a long-standing and absolutely essential (laughs) to understand uh, philosophical tradition. So just to... um, let people know what Erica is currently um,
1: working on.
0: She's got a, a huge project which um, has, has been running, I think, for eight years. Already.
1: Well, now it's in the tenth year already. In the tenth year, yes.
0: Um, it's, it's a 12-year project um, in Berlin called Interweaving Theatre Performance Culture. Performance cultures, yes. And um, in, in 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 the final two years, um, as we've just been discussing, one thing. Um, I think the project has done, and in a way characterises Erica's entire career, has not only brought different cultures uh, into serious discussion, but also has brought uh, a huge number of people from all around the world to work in in her centre in Berlin. So, to bring you this week to Oxford once more, um, as I say, is an enormous um enormous pleasure. Uh, Just a quick, in case I forget at the end, uh, there are flyers outside which the press has very kindly given us, um, uh, which will enable at least some modest discount on a ridiculously overpriced book. But anyone who has, of course, access to a library fund absolutely should make sure that this book is in the library. So I'm going to hand over now to Erica. Just to tell you that Erica is very keen at the end of her talk to have a discussion yeah. with, with, with you all. We are um, unfortunately uh, being forced, and unusually, to be forced to leave the room at, at 10 past four, but I think that should give us still some, it, yeah. some time, but we will continue uh, over a cup of tea as well. So yeah. welcome and thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, good afternoon, and first thank you very much for your invitation, Fiona, and for your introduction. It is, in fact, a great pleasure for me to be here and talk about my most recent book, uh, Tragedies, Endurance. Um, And this is, Fiona mentioned uh, my project on interweaving performance cultures, which goes out into the world. Uh, This goes now to Germany, and more or less only to Germany, and has at the center what we would call the cultural identity of the German educated middle class, the Bildungsbürgertum as we call it. Um, The point of departure for me is that since the famous Potsdam Antigone from 1841, um, there is a continuous performance history of Greek tragedies on German stages. And these performances usually greatly contribute to the cultural identity of this Bridenburgertum, affirming it, changing it, destabilizing, re whatever you wish can happen with uh, a cultural identity. It happens by way of performances of Greek tragedies. Um, from that, two questions arise which I will here deal with very selectively. The first is of course, how could this happen? Uh, we need a prehistory for the Potsdam Antigone in order to explain uh, this uh, st- rather strange fact. And then, of course, um, the question how did uh, such performances affect um, the cultural identity in the long run. This I cannot do here, so I have decided I will focus on the prehistory and then I will jump into the 1930s to the Third Reich and discuss the question how performances of Greek tragedies worked there. So let me start with the prehistory. Uh, of the Potsdam Antigone. It is, let's say, uh, the beginning of Philhellenism on the one hand and Magna on the other. And this is, I think, the, the most important date is very early 1755. Uh, this was the date where Winckelmann's treatise, Reflections on the Painting and Sculpture of the Greek, Greek appeared for the first time, which became the foundational document for German Philhellenism. Um, There he advocated noble simplicity and quiet greatness, and writes, this is the, the word in it, connoisseurs and imitators of Greek masterpieces, find in them not only nature at its most beautiful, but something larger than nature, that is to say, certain ideal forms of beauty. Cult of Beauty is, so to speak, that what underlies Philhellenism. The second event in the same year is the premiere of Lessing's domestic play um, in Frankfurt-upon-Oda, His Miss Sarah Sampson, that uh, centers on the figure of the gentle father and his virtuous daughter and the relationship between them. It also inaugurated a new Acting style in Germany, um, a kind of psychological realistic acting, which triggered empathy in the spectator. I will bring, read you from a letter about the audience response. It says: Her Lessing's tragedy was performed in Frankfurt, and for three and a half hours the audience sat weeping silent as statues, mm-hmm. to imagine at a time when spectators used to come and go as they wished, where they uh, ate and drink, where they had conversations uh, in the auditorium, something like that happened. And this is in fact uh, the beginning of the teatromania of the educated uh, middle class. From now on they could find there themselves. One might think these are two very different things. They are not, they are two sides of the same coin. Uh, they are meant to fight uh, the all-encompassing um, court culture in uh, Germany. Uh, they Frenchified culture, this is quite important. Uh, in, let's say in the following, uh, Louis XIV, uh, all the little Germans, you know that there were in the 18th century more than 300 uh, German states, and each of them, dukedoms, kingdoms, I do not know what else, they all wanted to be little uh, uh, Louis XIV, and so was the culture at these courts. Um, so we can say Philhellenism and Teatomania were the cornerstones for the development of the cultural identity of the educated middle classes, they, with which it started. So this was before the French Revolution. We have so to stay a little bit with the French, uh, because a lot of things happened in Germany against the French, or because of the French, or whatever it was with the French. Um, so the question is, what happened after the French Revolution? Um, I argue that the idea of Bildung, um, implying also aesthetic education, was meant as the German response to the French Revolution. Instead of a revolution, the Germans should have Bildung. What? How can we define Bildung? It's very difficult. Uh, this concept was propagated by Goethe, Wilhelm von Humboldt, Herder, and many many others. Um, Brouford um, translated it with self-cultivation, but this is, is not a good translation. I mean, it means more or less the development of an individual's potential to the full. That you have not restricted yourself to a certain faculty you have, but that you can develop everything that is in you. Uh, a very ideal idea for the bourgeoisie uh, who, who had, as Schiller put it, uh, to win bread. Uh, in a way. So the question is then, how how can I acquire Bildung? What is it? Um, it means that you do something not at a means to an end, but at an end by itself. This is very important. It was not only Goethe who uh, uh, propagated it that way, but Schiller who did it in a slightly different by- way because he had different from Goethe. He had welcomed the French Revolution. He became even honorary citizen, Monsieur Gillaire of uh, the French uh, Republic. But he was shocked, deeply shocked, when it turned into the reign of power. In 1795, uh, he published uh, his Letters on the Aesthetic Education uh, of Man. And a very short quote from that... I hope to convince you that we must indeed, if we are to solve that political problem in practice, follow the path of aesthetics, since it is through beauty that we arrive at freedom. So we need no revolution in the German stage, but we need is art and the cult of beauty. This is more or less the important uh, thing for it. so the key word here is beauty and of course this links back to Winkelmann and his cult of Greek as a cult of the Greeks as a cult of the uh, uh, beauty. Um, if one occupies oneself with the Greek masterpieces, this for an end in itself, then you will acquire Bildung, one way or another. Um, so the idea, since theatre was so important, the idea suggests itself not only to read Greek masterpieces, tragedies, but to perform them um, by theatres that were visited by the educated middle class. And so Goethe in 1802, in fact, uh, put on stage uh, Euripides' Ion in an adaptation uh, by uh, Schlegel, Um, It was a very new acting style. There was no realism, no psychology, no empathy, no tears on the sides of the spectators. It followed the principles which he called of musicality and the picturesque. It was the beauty that was shown in it. It was completely according to Goethe's idea of Bildung and Schiller's idea of aesthetic education. So, one should think... Here was the happy marriage of philhellenism and Theotromania. But no, this was absolutely not the case, the performance, the production. Although it was the production on which Goethe worked the most and the longest time, it was complete failure. Uh, only the philosopher Schelling was a person who knew how to appreciate it when he wrote I don't remember ever having had the pleasure of experiencing such a harmonious vision in the theatre. Most of the spectators didn't want a harmonious vision. They wanted to feel empathy and to cry and shed many tears. And this was not possible, alas. So um, I read you shortly from a letter from Caroline uh, Herder, She was uh, she was furious about this. She writes, "The newest law of theatre that now reigns and becomes more shameless and impertinent day by day considers dramatic art to be representation and declamation only. The content of the play is either entirely subordinate or disregarded in relation to the spectators. We are supposed." to sit in the audience like wooden puppets and watch and listen to the declamation of the wooden puppets on stage until we feel leave feeling drab and empty. Horrible. This must be a horrible performance for her and for many others too. And there is an explanation for that given by the self-confessed Philhellenist Johann Gottfried Herder. He writes... The Greek customs are not like ours, especially in terms of the relationship between the genders. Sophocles, after his famous response about Euripides, brought women on stage as they should be, Euripides as they were. But to be or not to be, we don't want women debased to a certain extent, blemished in such and such ways, practicing such and such wickedness in tragic theatre, And it speaks to our honor that we are disgusted by that. So, it is the absolute foreignness of Greek tragedy on the stage that made it unbearable. So, Goethe's idea to elevate theater to an institution of Bildung by putting a Greek tragedy on stage, it failed, it failed. So, what what brought about changes? This was, again... (laughs) the French, Uh, we have the Napoleonic Wars uh, that ravaged most of the German states, and in particular Prussia. And so after these wars, Prussia had to undergo lots of reforms. And so they asked Wilhelm von Humboldt to become the director of the Department of Educational and Ecclesiastical Affairs. And he made a huge school reform. Instead of the old uh, Latin schools, uh, the gymnasium was founded. Where Greek and mathematics were the most important subjects to be taught, uh, studied as a means not to another end, but as means and end by itself, for their own sake. <clears throat> this became now the institution from which the former Bildungsbürger recruited the gymnasium. This was, so to speak, their beginning. Um, so, Philhellenism became constitutive of their cultural identity in these times uh, of the gymnasium. The second important point is the emergence of historicism. And now it was able to appreciate the foreign for its own sake, that it is foreign and you need not appropriate to you. This made the performance of Antigone in Potsdam in 1841 possible. It was not meant as a copy of Greek theatre. It used um, a true, a faithful translation, as it said. Um, it brought in certain kinds of um, stage uh, devices from the Greeks, but it was not in copy. Copy. It was something entirely new. Uh, and it, in particular, it was Mendelssohn music that helped a great deal uh, too. This is its success. Its success is also uh, proved by the fact that it was copied very quickly uh, in Paris, in London, in New York, and other cities, and uh, also in very uh, different uh, German uh, states. Uh, from now on, in fact, theater became an institution of Bildung, even for those who had no access to, to the gymnasium, like the women. For instance, girls were not admitted. To a gymnasium. It was a school just for boys. Um, Also, craftsmen and other parts of the bourgeoisie. They could here uh, become confronted with something which usually was restricted uh, for the gymnasium. Um, The aesthetics developed in this performance. uh, They were prevalent and valid until the end of the 19th century, more or less. Um, and uh, they match perfectly Winkelmann's ideas of noble simplicity and quiet uh, greatness. Um, I have, in the f- further development of performances in the book, I have considered only performances uh, which either introduced a new image of ancient Greece or a new aesthetics or both together. Because otherwise, with these thousands of performances, it would have been more than 400 pages, I think. Um, But um, before discussing uh, performances of Greek tragedies now in the Third Reich, I think I should make a a short link, uh, at least. Because there was a very important uh, change in the image of ancient Greek brought about uh, by Nietzsche. Um, and this, of course, had repercussions uh, on uh, the Bildungsbürger and on uh, the theater. Um, it was the, the life reform movement, the Lebensreform movement came into being uh, in the consequence with that, uh, hailing and heralding the movement of the nude body in fresh air under sunshine. Um, this was one of, yeah, it was an important movement. The Bildungsbürger took it up very eagerly. And on the other side, we have a uh, stage director uh, uh, like Max Reinhardt, who brought on the stage several Greek tragedies, and with each uh, brought a new image of ancient Greece and a new theatre aesthetics at the same time. In his um, Electra in 1903, uh, Gertrude Erzold, who played the Electra, was presented as a Greek man but what could say at the self-time at a modern hysteric uh, they both merged more or less in this figure as she uh, showed it. And then he did in 1910 uh, Oedipus the King and 1912 the Oresteia, and both in the circus Schumann. One has to believe this in the circus that is the place where the lower classes go, or the, the Bildungsbürgerchen only goes to their children to have them enjoyment and put there. The highest good of the Bildungsbrugertum, the Greek tragedy, it was already something. And of course, he did it uh, with uh, a completely new aesthetics. He called the theater, in fact, the spectators hailed from all social classes. Um, he called it the theater of the 5,000, uh, and it was a new people's theater done by a performance of a Greek uh, tragedy. Uh, This King Oedipus was, again, very uh, uh, successful. It was, uh, he toured with it all over Europe, and he restaged it also in uh, certain parts, as in Budapest or in London, where he did it. Uh, Gilbert Murray, uh, who we met just outside, he made a a new translation of uh, the Oedipus, and he was just fascinated by uh, the um, performance Professor Reinhardt was frankly pre-Hellenic as is the Oedipus story itself partly Cretan and Mycenaean partly Oriental partly to my great admiration merely savage the half-naked torchbearers well, there we have Lebensreform movement with loincloths and long black hair made my heart leap with joy there was real early Greece about them not the Greece of the schoolroom or the conventional art studio uh, so it was, in fact, It was the, the chorus consisted of more than 500 people and they went into the circus ring through the audiences. Um, it was a mass theatre, in fact, thousands for thousands, um, and it gave a completely new image of ancient Greece as well, a more Nietzschean image, let's put it there, and a new uh, theatre aesthetics. Now I come to my second part, Uh, when the National Socialists seized power in Germany on January 30, 1933, they were quick to take control of all political and politically relevant social institutions. They were also eager to strengthen their hold over the cultural institutions relating to Bildung, such as universities, schools, art institutions or theatres. The school curricula were altered to shift the focus to modern subjects, so-called modern, such as biology, geography, physical education, recent history, and literature, which at the gymnasium meant reducing the study of the classics. All subjects, including the classics, had to strictly adhere to the idea of Aryan supremacy and racial purity. The Nazis devised a new form of theater, the so-called Tingspiel, Tinkplay. In a speech to German chief directors on May 8, all in 1933, Joseph Goebbels, the newly appointed Reich Minister of Propaganda, developed and explained the idea of a new people's theater. The National Socialists will reunite people and stage. We will create a theater of 50,000 and 100,000. We will draw even the last full cumbrid into the magic of dramatic art and enthuse them again and again for the great substance of our national lives. It is surely no coincidence that the expression theatre of 50,000 and 100,000 recalls the term Reinhard coined for his new people's theatre, theatre of the 5,000. The teen plays were meant to replace it, and for them new theatres, outdoor theatres were built uh, after the, the uh, image of Greek theatres. In fact, Goebbels wanted Reinhardt to join the Ting play movement. Reinhardt had left Germany after his last bulletin production, Hugo von Hofmannsthal's Salzburg Great World Theater, which premiered on March 1st at the Deutsches Theater. The actor Werner Krauss was dispatched to offer him honorary Aryan status, you must imagine that, and to talk him into returning. Reinhardt, of course, um, declined. One might assume that all the sudden comprehensive changes following the seizure of power, which deeply affected all institutions of Bildung, would have caused an outcry, if not an uproar, among the Bildungsbürger. But this was not the case, especially as far as the conservative majority was concerned. On the contrary, there was an upsurge of enthusiasm, hope and expectation not only among national socialists, but also among most of the patriotic Bildungsbürger. Euphoria spread to the extent that it even seduced an intellectual and poet of the statue of Gottfried Brenn to announce in a speech held in May 1933 that the moment had arrived when history was about to mutate and breed its own people. Words he deeply regretted by the end of 34. There were a number of people, uh, even among the Bildungsbürger, who regarded the months following the change of power as the eagerly awaited national revolution. How could this have happened? Well, one aspect might be that it soon became well known that Hitler was an ardent Philhellenist. Already in his propagandist book Mein Kampf, he had constantly referred to the Greeks not only as a cultural model, but also as racial kin. In his first indicative speech on cultural politics after the seizure of power on the occasion of the Reichskulturtag in Nuremberg, in early September, 33, he outlined the program for National Socialist art by taking recourse to the Greeks. I quote: "Since it is better to imitate something good." than to produce something new badly, the available intuitive creations of these peoples, the Greek, can undoubtedly fulfill the educational and guiding mission today as a stylistic example. In the same way that the Nordic spirit experiences its conscious resurrection, it will have to solve the cultural tasks of our time with equal clarity and therefore with aesthetic beauty, just as its racial forebears overcame the problems they faced. For any Bildungsbürger, the first sentence recalled Wintelmann's statement in Reflections on the painting and on, on sculpture of the Greeks. There is but one way for the moderns to become great and perhaps unequaled, I mean by imitating the ancients. It was also evident that by racial forebreath, Hitler was referring all the time to the ancient Greeks his ardent philhellenism, his constant invocation of beauty and of the nation of culture that must create beautiful works, and last but not least, the enormous sums of money that he invested in cultural institutions, including the German archaeological institutes in Athens and Rome, by the way, financed from uh, this uh, soul of Mein Kampf, uh, all the money he earned uh, with Mein Kampf he put into these institutions, <laughs> Uh, but this convinced many Bildungsbürger, particularly the conservative among them, that he would restore and defend their own mm-hmm. values, that he not only shared their culture and identity, but epitomized it. Performances of Greek tragedies during the Third Reich took place in very particular contexts that endowed them with a previously unsurpassed weight and significance. This holds true for Lothar Muttel's production of the Oresteia, as part of the opening celebration of the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936, as well as for the many water productions of Greek tragedies Oedipus, Oresteia, Electra, Women of Trachis, and so on. While productions of Schiller's Wilhelm Taylor were prohibited in 1941, 16 productions of Antigone were mounted between 1939 and the closure of all theatres in the Reich on September 1st, 1944. The two particular contexts for the performances of Greek tragedies were first the Olympic Games and second the war. The contexts related to them had two different codes. I start with the Olympic Games. The National Socialists were initially opposed to the idea of hosting the Olympic Games in Berlin, a decision made years earlier because they did not believe in any kind of internationalism. Yet they soon understood that the Games would grant them a unique opportunity to sketch a particularly favorable picture of Nazi Germany to be sold to an international audience. They decided to fully exploit the particular relationship between ancient Olympia and Germany as established by Ernst Curtius and his excavations. His findings were taken in in account for the design of the Reichssportfeld, the site of the Olympic games. It was decided to replicate the topography of ancient Olympia in many respects, thus revising ancient Olympia in Berlin. This purpose was also served by a new element in the opening ceremony. The igniting of the Olympic fire in the sacred precinct of ancient Olympia and it's transferred to Berlin via a relay race. Thus proclaiming Nazi Germany a Virginian heir of ancient Greece. So what was the function of the Oresteia within it? There were three kinds of performances uh, in the opening ceremonies, which took quite a time. The first was a Festspiel, Olympic Youth, openly reflecting to the Agones Olympicoi and introducing the topos of self-sacrifice for the fatherland. The second was a play on the Tink stage, adjacent to the Reichsportwelt, a choral theatre on this stage, and then the third, the Oresteia in the Staatliches Schauspielhaus. Lothar, Lothar Müttel directed the trilogy. I think this name does not tell you anything. He was a famous director in those times. He was a member of the party since May thirty-three already, and in forty-seven he became denazified, and chief director of the Weimar of Theater. Um, still, his production, it's difficult uh, to see uh, that it's expressly fascist. As I will try to, to show you. He used the translation by Bilamowitz Möllendorf, which seemed to that time rather outdated, um, it, because this the translation was penned in protest of Nietzsche's vision of ancient Greece. It even introduced numerous Christian terms such as sin, hell, or the exclamation God in heaven, and this way, Christianized the, as Nietzsche would have it, Dionysian tragedy, thus making it palatable for the audiences of his time. Um, so it's strange that Mütter used it. As the reviews suggest. Um, his staging of the first two parts of the Oresteia conveyed the image of an archaic, savage, and bloody Greece, much more in line with Nietzsche's vision. He made only slight changes to the translation by removing many of the Christian terms and other expressions which sounded too dated or slanted. There were no ideological or political statements to be found so far. Judging by the reviews, Mütel placed particular emphasis on the shift brought about by Athena. While in earlier Oresteia production, the Eumenides had been ruthlessly shortened or omitted entirely as was prominently the case in Reinhardt's production 1912, Mürtel made almost no cuts to the play. It seemed that at the centre of his interest lay the sudden shift away from the principle of revenge and counter-revenge, linked to the curse affecting the House of Artrois, and towards the principle of polis, which investigates the motives of the deed, evaluates the arguments, and adheres to the result of a voting process. The emphasis on this shift seems to have been suggested also by the intensity of the actors. A critic writes, the first two parts emphasize the archaic through a force that captivates, frightens and deeply stirs the spectators. Mütte does not shy away from Dionysian ecstasy. When Cassandra runs across the steps of the Atreides Palace in the ecstasy of prophecy, sniffing blood like an animal, when Clytemnestra, stained with blood, holding up the murderous axe in her hand, transgresses the threshold, when Orestes drags her up the steps while she screams horribly out of fear of death and then himself is whipped into madness by the rising goddesses of revenge, then the elemental effects of a passionate theatre are achieved in which at the same time the shudders of a religious emotion tremble. Mutl stages the end of the heroic era. The terror of the end of the world accompanies it. All critics agree on the enormous impact that the first two parts had on the spectators, differing only in the detail they choose to describe. Several critics use the term Dionysian in order to capture the particular quality. Accordingly, the transition from the second to the third part is characterized, I quote, as the passage from the Dionysian to the Apollonian, from mythos to history, from the lineage to the state. If we agree with the critics in their judgment that the emphasis lay on the passage, it becomes, at least at first glance, difficult to discover any links between the production and National Socialist ideology. However, Given the context of the production, it is apparent how the Nazis could have monopolized it. This is demonstrated and explained by several reviewers, particularly in those newspapers that were owned by or close to the Nazis. The newspaper Deutsches Wollen declared, ancient drama today is not alien to us. While at the turn of the century it was a colorless educational experience, Today it is a vivid living experience. We know and honor the power of blood so that an Orestes and an Oedipus from the distant past have become close to us. The the critic of the Münchner Zeitung elucidates the parallels between Aeschylus and his own time. I quote, the Oresteia is born out of the clash of two Weltanschauungen. In it, There lives the enormous tension that always shakes the earth when the old is doomed to fall and something new is born, as we experience it today. And the critic of the newspaper Germania stresses how true Mutl's production is to the text because it succeeds in depicting, I quote, these changing times from the law of revenge to the new doctrine that the ruler and the leader of the community even stand above the bonds of blood. Almost nowhere in antiquity does the yearning for redemption through a new ethics come to the fore so strongly and with such depth of emotion. The battle between light and darkness, between law and violence, the tragic clash of duties, the rootedness of the great work of art in the spirit of a people and its religion, here, in the immediate bonding to the divine and folkish working of fate lies the mystery and the uninterrupted effect of tragedy. It's so clear it is Zeit- und Wende that is theirs. The review abounds in National Socialist ideology terminology aimed at demonstrating the topicality of Aeschylus Oresteia and its staging by Mytl in the early days of the Third Reich. By staging the transition from the Dionysian to the Apollonian, from an archaic to a classical Greece, Mütles' production brought forth the possibility of being understood and interpreted as a representation of the Zeitemwende, the changing times brought about by the Nazis. At stake here was a particular image and idea of ancient Greek culture suitable for being employed in the service of national socialist propaganda. This is suggested by the repeated proclamation of a close affinity, even kinship, between the Hellenic and German spirit. In many reviews, Athena is labelled the Nordic goddess. Moreover, the success of the performance was traced back to this kinship, as many critics emphasise. This claimed kinship between the Greeks and the Germans was no longer regarded as a spiritual one alone, as postulated by Winkelmann, Humboldt and Goethe and others, but also, if not foremost, as a racial one, a blood relationship. This idea, dear to Hitler and other national socialists, took recourse to a line of thought that originated in the 19th century, which I cannot follow here uh, further in detail. And the review suggests Mutant's production could have made the spectators aware of This proclaimed racial kinship with the Greeks and of their obligations arising from it. Those critics who adhere to National Socialist ideology undoubtedly received the performance in this vein. After the Olympic Games had come to an end, the German Archaeological Institute in Athens once again launched excavations in Olympia, generously funded by the German government, as Hitler had decreed at the start of the event. The excavations continued until 1943. Only a few months after the end of the Olympic Games, steps were taken to prepare the population for the war to come. Even if some of these actions may at first glance seem unrelated to it. The first one important in our context is the abolition of art criticism. The measure was to bring about and guarantee a certain uniformity of criticism of air artworks and theatre performances, a blow directed against the more critical part of the Bildungsbürgertum. The second relates more obviously to the matter of war, in that it demanded a new heroic drama celebrating the idea of sacrifice. In 1937, The Reichsdramaturg Rainer Schlösser published his essay, The Immortal Conversation on the Tragic, Dramaturgy as the Law of Nordic Culture. In it, he defined the tragic, and in particular I quote, guiltless tragedy, guiltless tragedy, and the expression of a specific Nordic natural fundamental attitude, which in his view Sophocles' tragedies realize in an exemplary manner. I quote, The silence of God imposes the tragic hate to determine on your own the attitude to be adopted. Oedipus bears the responsibility which the gods can no longer bear on his own human shoulders. He demonstrates the highest possible freedom of humanity by speaking and executing the verdict himself. Instead of discussing the question of guilt, Schlösser focuses on self-sacrifice and the corresponding tragic attitude. He finds the heroic in man's relationship to fate, I quote, which elevates human beings even as it crushes them. The task of the proclaimed heroic drama would be to create a new form to express this idea of the tragic. A few such dramas were in fact written and even performed. Yet these plays remained marginal, not only in terms of quantity but also in quality. Not a single one of them was performed on the stages of Berlin. However, since the proclaimed heroic drama, which aimed to propagate noble death for the fatherland, failed to flourish, its earthworm, Greek tragedy, had to take its place. From January 1939 onwards, Greek tragedies were performed all over the Reich. Even the first Antigone production was mounted before the outbreak of the war. It premiered on June 2nd, 1939, in Darmstadt. As already mentioned, Antigone proved to be the most popular tragedy. It was at 16 different places it was performed, Um, and each production ran for a prolonged period of time so that during the war a total of more than 150 performances of Antigone were shown all over the Reich. Theatre spectators were constantly reminded of the war, A small leaflet enclosed in the programme notes to the Antigone production at the Staatliches Schauspielhaus, for example, calls on the spectators, I quote, to remain calm in the case of air raid sirens. The interruption of the performance will be announced from the stage in time. Leave the auditorium in an orderly fashion and find your air raid shelter at the cloakroom and the adjoining rooms. Um, The critic of the Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung wrote in his review... The Staatstheater deserves even more praise for opening their season with Sophocles at the beginning of the second year of the war. When some hours later the spectator sits at the table in the cellar, accompanied by flag concerts, while English planes whiz over the residential areas, he will feel doubly grateful for having once again been transferred into the timeless space of great poetry for a few hours." Yet, the choice of Antigone comes as a surprise, as it had begun to serve as a coat of sorts for the intellectual resistance against the Nazi regime. However, the simple fact that Antigone was put on stage does not necessarily imply that it served as an act of resistance, even in times of war. The above quoted critic obviously received the performance as transferring him into the timeless space of great poetry for a few hours, or Given the ban on theater criticism, can this sentence be read as implying a certain resistance? We shall never know. Since the plans for the upcoming season had to be authorized by the Reichstheaterkammer and the Reichskulturkammer, the chief director of the theater had to submit them well ahead of time. We must therefore assume that all the institutions involved, particularly Hermann Göring, who supervised the Staatstheater, agreed on Gründgens choice of Antigone. At the beginning of the year, when the plans were submitted for approval, there was still the expectation that the war would end soon. Poland, Denmark and Norway were occupied. Other successes were being anticipated. On May 10th, 1940, German troops invaded the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg and attacked France. On June uh, 14th, Paris was taken without a fight and on June 22nd, France surrendered. On July six, forty, 40, the, the victorious army marched into Berlin on streets strewn with flowers. On July 19th, Hitler was celebrated as the great victor at the Krolloper in Berlin. From the point of view of Hitler and his Camarilla, the current situation thus looked quite favourable at the time of Antigonus' premiere at the Staatstheater on September 3rd, followed on October 1st, uh, by the opening night of again Lothar Mütel's production of the same tragedy at the Burgtheater in Vienna. In such a situation, even performances of Antigone might not make those in power feel threatened. However, we must not forget that the next time this tragedy was staged was after the occupation of Greece and it continued to be staged until many German cities lay in ruins and the closure of all theaters in the Reich was decreed as a result. The proclaimed racial kinship between Greeks and Germans, as well as the understanding of Greek tragedy as the earth form of the urgently needed heroic drama, did not allow for a ban on Greek tragedies. Therefore, the questions as to how it was possible to stage Greek tragedies, on particular Antigone during the war, does not arise. Instead, we must ask how the productions responded to the situation, which constantly changed over the time. <coughs> those five years. Antigone was the most popular Greek tragedy with the Bildungsbürgertum since the days of Hegel's writing on Antigone and the legendary Teague Mendelssohn production in Potsdam. It was read and discussed in gymnasiums as well as in various debating circles. Many knew the text or at least the second chorus song by heart, many of the terrible things and nothing more terrible than man. Antigone's most famous words, not to join in hating, but to join in loving is my nature. And her last long passages, beginning with, O tomb, O bridal chamber, O deep dark ever guarded home to which I go, to those who are my own people, the greatest number of whom in death Persephassa has received. The question to ask in taking a closer look at the production of the Staatstheater is what it offered the Bildungsbürger. Did it emphasize or diminish the political dimension of the tragedy? Did it magnify its topicality or its timelessness as the above quoted critic suggested? Did it reaffirm the already destabilized cultural identity of the Bildungsbürger or contribute to its further destabilization? We must consider that by that point even the more conservative among them were no longer enthusiastic about Hitler and National Socialism. Of course, the fact that a Greek tragedy was performed appealed to the Bildungsbürger. The performance took place in the very same space where the Tieg Mendelssohn production had been shown several times up to 1886, the former Royal Theatre. By the time it was performed for the last time, the classical style invented and popularized by it already became outdated. Photographs of Marianne Hoppe as Antigone in Karl Kainstruth's production in 1940, however, suggest that here the classical style was revived once again. She resembles... no well, this is still the Nazis, yeah, Antigone, here we have her. The one before was... No, 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 this is already later. Here you have her, the white person. She resembled the statues of classical Greek depicted in the program notes, specifically because her white dress was, I quote, draped like that of the girls on the porch of the carrier She wore very light, almost marble-like white makeup that underlined her similarity to a classical Greek statue. I quote, her appearance is that of the Greek ideal, marble suffused by purple blood. The last critic even chose the following slogans at the subheading of his review, Antigone in Strictly Classical Form. However, the descriptions of the performance in the reviews, along with other sources, such as the sketches for the stage and photographs, suggest a different conclusion. If the epithet classical style is to be applied at all, it was certainly a new classical style. For the mentioned sources suggest the idea that the mise-en-scene pivoted on oppositional, and dialectic elements that appear to the spectators as distant, foreign, strange, or even exotic on the one hand, and familiar and habitual on the other. This dialectic of darkness and transparency (laughs) dominated the stage space. Because of its monumentality, some critics felt unable to recognize the stage space as a representation of classical Greece. They rather located it in archaic Greek or in Egyptian culture. The space remained unchanged throughout the performance. There was no intermission. However, the scenes did change. This effect was brought about through the lighting. Although the spectators thought they were seeing monumental pillars, uh, those were, in fact, widths of cloth that became transparent when lit from behind. As such, the seemingly monumental space gradually became transparent. In this way, for instance, I quote showing the heavy pillars and gloomy walls as an X ray image gives the Theban place a strange charm, transparent, dreamlike, and unreal, stunning but mysterious. As already uh, stated, Antigone resembled a classic Greek statue. Creon, in contrast, was dressed in a red robe and black cape with a gold-embroidered belt, a costume characterized by the critic of the Völkischer Beobachter, that is the Nazi newspaper, as a red satrap garb, identifying Creon as an oriental ruler. Evidently, As the majority of the critics perceived and received it, the mise-en-scene sided with Antigone against Creon. This had also been the case in the Potsdam Antigone, which, however, presented Creon as a dignified ruler. Here, as one critic described it, Creon was to be regarded as representative of the principle of state, implying a clear bias towards Antigone, which, which, with the war raging, could have provoked I think, at least a ban on the production. However, the production justified the bias by applying a clever strategy. Only Antigone and those around her were addressed and presented as Greeks, while Creon was turned into an oriental ruler and barbarian, as many critics emphasized. They spoke about his, I quote, brutal autocracy based on violence and blazing vengefulness, described him as a villain More Asian than Greek, almost Cretan Egyptian tyrant, emphasizing this hot tempered nature that springs from a torrid, almost oriental mind. He was regarded a Greek ruler of primeval times, if he was Greek at all. It seemed that only such representation of Creon made the mise en scène acceptable to the Nazis. The production focused on the central question of the tragedy, that of guilt, which Schlösser wanted to have excluded from the idea of the tragic and answered it by unambiguously siding with Antigone. This is not to say that the production represented Antigone as a familiar figure by showing her as a contemporary with whom the spectators could identify and empathize. Rather, by making Mariana Hoppe resemble a Greek statue, the audience was kept at a certain distance, which, however, did not necessarily exclude or alienate the spectators. Many reviews state the spectators were, I quote, deeply moved or expressed profound emotionality. The reviews mention that standing ovations given to the actors and the director followed a long period of silence at the end, during which the audience seemingly had to break the spell that the performance had cast on them. Keeping the prohibition of criticism in mind, the discussion in the newspaper on the mise-en-scene siding with Antigone is remarkable. The National Socialist critics clearly state that this was against the sacrosanct idea of the state, as they say, and that Creon's decree certainly speaks to our current sentiments. That is, that Creon is right, Quite unlike Hegel, who accords to both sides some right, the same right resulting in the tragic collision, they even concede that Sophocles himself sided with Antigone, and since Sophocles' tragedies were exemplary models for the new heroic dramas, as Schloss had explained, this settled the dispute. However, the matter seemed important enough to the critics to underline that while the production might be faithful to the text, its message contradicted the ruling. Ideology. This allows for the assumption that they read the stance taken by the production as a political act, but still felt the need to cloud this. In my view, the label classical does not do justice to the style of the production. As described above, its main feature was the creation of opposites, with the passages between them being blurred. The world of Antigone was presented as classical in terms of her appearance. The transparency of the stage space, however, gave it a dreamlike unreal aura. The classical world, as it may appear to the Bildungsbürger in their dreams, not as part of a historical reality anymore. On the other hand, Creon's world was characterized by the sort of monumental architecture belonging to an archaic time, which, however, became transparent when Antigone entered it. One could read this style as a commentary on the relationship between the actual world of the National Socialist regime and the war provoked by them and the world of antiquity so often invoked by the Nazis and particularly by Hitler. This classical Greece seemed mysterious and appeared as a transparent dream, swallowed at the end by the huge abyss of monumental architecture. Instead of labeling these oppositional elements a classical style, one might more appropriately describe it as an attempt to stage and thus to let the spectators' Bildungsbürger physically experience the disappearance of their image of Greece, not only in Greece's monumentalization as realized in Nazi sculpture and architecture, but first and foremost in the abyss of the Nazi regime. From this perspective... They witnessed the disappearance of their own cultural identity and the reality brought forth by the Nazis. This, of course, is speculation, and there are no documents that could back up this assumption. However, the gratitude expressed by the critic of the Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung for having once again been transferred into the timeless space of great poetry for a few hours may speak to it. I think I should then end here. Maybe in the discussion we can come also to the after period, post period period. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, thank you so much, um, Erica. That was that was riveting, and I think um, uh, the, your your final. Uh, five minutes of, of 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 interpretation that you end up saying uh being uh sort of um, interestingly was, was, was speculative seemed to me to be totally plausible the idea that it was essential that this regime should swallow up um this Bildung, as you say um was 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 me really persuasive and I'd throw that out um, because I know we've got we've got ten minutes okay. when uh, of, of, of of questions and I'm sure a lot of you have got questions for Erica. So any any openers? <coughs> yes yeah, sure. Um, so I have a question. Thank you so much. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. I have a question about um, choruses at yeah. the end of the 19th century specifically. Um, you, so, there's this period of industrialization and urbanization and the rise of individualism that is tied to the pervasion of romanticism throughout all kinds of performative art and genres um, during this time. And then we get to Fuchs and Behrens and Reinhardt, and suddenly <coughs> they're using choruses um, to try to create a community, kind of almost as a resistance to this, this growing interest in individualism throughout the second half of the 19th century um but i'm wondering i'm wondering how much of the story that is and whether there were also productions or, or theater makers who are putting choruses on the stage in order to highlight the individual to, by contrast
1: well i i think this is exactly what reinhardt did mm. uh, i mean i think he responded first to the fact that uh, it was a growing mass society that we had there. There was, after the foundation of the Reich, there was such an enormous industrialization as England and France had done it uh, already for decades and now it became in in Germany and the masses came from the country into the uh, um, uh, cities. Um, And his response was that he individualized, even among these 500, he individualized. Everyone had, they had not the same dresses, each had something that only this one had. Then they had certain sentences that only that one uh, spoke. So I think uh, already Reinhardt took great, because he was someone who, who was very much for individualism, <laughs> he took great care to, to, in a way, to, if we were talk about messages, to say even if there are messes now and we live in a mess society, this does not mean that people lose their individualism. They still remain individualists, And I think this is even more so than this uh, pseudo-classical choruses where they, with the long dress, come all up and, and in kind of unison uh, proclaim there uh, what the chorus text chor- the is. So I must say I prefer the solution because Reinhardt has in mind what his times are. And therefore also taking the circus where the mass Entertainment can take place. I think he did that, in fact.
0: Great, thank you. We've got five minutes.
1: Other questions? Yes, David.
0: David. It's rather a big question. but Burgertum Bildung, with its emphasis on aesthetics rather than morality, which was the more sort of. was the dominant vein in France and England. Do you trace some connection between that movement and the rise or acceptability of, of fascism?
1: No, no, I don't, I don't think so, because the ethics were always... I don't say, quite on purpose, not the morale, morality. The ethics in these groups were very high and very strong. Uh, but it was as, as I try to make clear uh, that after the Weimar Republic, uh, which had given the gymnasium a decisive blow, I mean the gymnasium had been the only institution where you made the abitur that uh, gave you the license to study to go to the university, and. In the Weimar Republic, many other schools uh, were able now to, to grant the abitur so that new, new uh, people could <coughs> go to the university. Uh, and there were lots of other things where the Bildungsbürger felt uh, uh, their values were crushed in a way. And I think this was more that because at the beginning, as you know, Hitler talked all the time about the the Greeks and this and that with the Greeks and uh, uh, made it, so to speak, as as his mission. So they, some believed, in fact, and I said the first two years, of course, after the Reichskristallnacht, this was all over and gone. And they tried in a way to the time until uh, the Olympic Games, to keep a certain image. Those who were were much more insightful knew it much earlier uh, that this was not the Bildungsbürger values. But I don't think it was the aesthetic part. Uh, Quite the contrary. Uh, Many of them felt appalled by these masses, which were not Reinhardian masses, how they marched through the cities, but uh, like a monumental block where they felt rather appalled. I don't think that.
0: I, I really hate to ask everyone to join us for tea and continue our conversation, but I fear that's what we're going to have to do. And I'm really sure we've been moved to a different slot today. Yeah. And, and, and very kindly, they've given us a little bit of grace. So I do apologise. But I, I mean, I can tell that there are lots and lots more questions for Erica. She, I'm sure, will be very very keen to answer them. Do join us for a cup of tea. And please join me in thanking Erica very, very much for a, a really exciting time.